Hi, I'm David Freudberg from Humankind. The public radio documentary you're about to hear, The Right to Vote, explores one of the most basic questions facing our democracy. If you value this kind of content, which we make available on public radio and on our weekly podcast, please support our work to produce more. Go to humanmedia.org and at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Thank you. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Park Foundation, the Humankind Program Fund, and the SC Group, whose charitable resources include FJC, a foundation of donor-advised funds at fjc.org. The Declaration of Independence itself is just being trampled on. The Constitution is being trampled on. Just flagrantly, and nothing's being done about it. The battle over who may vote, contentious through American history and still today. You're listening to a Humankind special, The Right to Vote. I'm David Freudberg. Often heated, sometimes contested, and widely seen as negative to the point of nauseating, our electoral system remains, for better or worse, the very foundation of American democracy. It was the method devised by the nation's wig-wearing 18th century founders to safeguard their experimental country from the threat of monarchy and dictatorship. But at times throughout the ensuing course of American history, the right of citizens to vote has been bitterly disputed. It was just scandalous about how you could literally be killed for registering to vote. Gwendolyn Zohara Simmons teaches religion and African-American studies at the University of Florida in Gainesville. In 1964, at age 19, she worked in Mississippi to help secure the right of all Americans to vote. Black people were told under no circumstances should you attempt to register to vote. Those Who would tell them? The election officials, the sheriffs. I mean, this was known by every black person in the state that you cannot register to vote. You cannot vote. I mean, this, is, this was um, a life-and-death situation. And, you know, we... And had people been harmed if they attempted? Absolutely. I mean, not only harmed, people had been killed. The Voting Rights Act, signed in 1965 by President Lyndon Johnson, attempted to enforce the Constitution's 15th Amendment, which a century earlier had guaranteed the right of African Americans to vote following the abolition of slavery. But to this day, a debate rages over who in America may have unfettered access to the ballot box. Hi there. Can I enter the polling place here? Yeah. Thank you. It's primary day in Illinois. I'm in Chicago's Logan Square neighborhood, where a race for local state representatives seems to have captured the most attention. But voter turnout has been light so far here in the large new field house at Haas Park, where young children are scampering around the playground on a chilly morning. You are in the 41st precinct. 
we're, we're seven, they're 41. Yeah, it's now at the election board. Well, it's the same Website building. It's just, it's just down the oh, hall. On the other side. Yeah. Barbara did find her way to the right room for her precinct. She's an early retiree who did computer work at the University of Illinois. I've been voting since I was 18, since I was eligible to vote. I voted every election. I think maybe I missed one in my whole life. Mask your current age? I'm 56 now. And why do you make such a religious commitment to voting? While I'm very cynical, I still believe that this is really the only tool I've got uh, to express my views and exp get my, get my uh, views out there. I said, I have 20 minutes, I'm going to run there. Literally ran here, but... You're in your, your running suit. Yes, I literally not ran here. Um, I just think I'm young, I'm 24, so I think it's important because a lot of this stuff is affecting me now since I graduated college and I'm working and stuff, and you don't realize it affects you until you are in the community, you know. What, what kind of things are affecting you that you would hope to impact by voting? Well, definitely the education and also like health care and things like that are affecting me personally. And I think, well, what's one vote going to do? But one vote can turn into several votes, which can turn into the right person being elected. So that's why I came. And your name? Is Democratia. My name means democracy. Yeah, I'm Greek, so. Your name is Democratia. My name is, Dem yeah, I, um, I was born here, but my parents were born in Greece, and they named me Democratia after my mom's mom. Like voting in Athens 2,500 years ago, which excluded women and slaves, Voting in early America did not allow participation by everyone, but as far back as the 1600s, there were formal elections in the colonies. And the voting that was done was usually done was called, what was called viva voce. Um, was not with a written ballot. People gathered on an election day and in one form or another uttered their preferences or sometimes just uttered, yes, they acquiesced to this, and they did it out loud. Alexander Kesar, author of The Right to Vote, is professor of history and public policy at Harvard. Most people are quite surprised to hear, you know, for example, that there is nothing about the right to vote in the Constitution. And there was certainly a presumption among most of the framers, not all, but most, that those people who would be voting would be of the better sort. Not, not necessarily an aristocracy, but it would not include the poor. It would certainly be male, and in most cases was presumed to be white. So at America's inception, when the founders' democratic ideals symbolized a great leap from monarchy, the majority of people living in the United States were actually disenfranchised. Only gradually would certain groups gain the right to vote, often then provoking a backlash. In fact, for a brief period starting in the late 1700s, women were allowed to vote in New Jersey, a right that the legislature then rescinded in 1807. It would be a very long wait before the Constitution eventually enfranchised all female Americans. Colgate University historian Faye Dudden. When women began the struggle for the vote about the middle of the 19th century, married women had no right to own property. Uh, you couldn't own the property that you brought into the marriage. You couldn't own your, your own wages. Women certainly didn't ha have never had a jury of their peers. Women were 
taxed without representation? Another group of citizens generally barred from voting in early America were people who didn't own a minimum amount of real estate. If you merely rented, you weren't allowed to vote. Benjamin Franklin opposed this rule, but he was an exception among the country's founders. Alex Kesar. In the beliefs of a number of the upper classes, there was this sense that they wanted people who were voting uh, to be exercising their independent judgment. They could not; they should not be improperly influenced by any other person, and thus they had to have sufficient economic means to do that. There's a lot of talk about demagogues coming in, about sort of uh, charismatic demagogic leaders who will manipulate the poor. At the same time, there is a fear of poor people, a concern that if property does not have special rights, then the property list will seize the property of the wealthy. And there are echoes of this concern in today's debate over income inequality and wealth redistribution. The requirement that voters own property was lifted in the early 1800s, but a dispute would soon erupt over an entirely different kind of property, the ownership of human beings as slaves. After North and South clashed in the U.S. Civil War, it opened the question of voting rights for newly freed slaves. Alex Kesar. One thing that happened was that there were a lot of African Americans during the war, from the beginning of the war, from the North, who actually fought alongside Union soldiers. And there was a notion which goes, fairly, which goes back fairly deep into, into our culture um, and European cultures that someone who, someone who fights for a country should have the right to vote. Um, and that these men had earned it, they had risked their lives. Wartime has a way of shaking society to its core. And on several occasions, the expansion of civil rights in America has followed periods of military battle. Five years after the Civil War ended, the Constitution's 15th Amendment was ratified. It barred states from denying a man the right to vote based on race or whether he'd previously been a slave. This meant a million freedmen, although not women, were suddenly enfranchised. And for a time, that reshaped the political landscape of the South. During Reconstruction, black men were able to vote. University of Florida professor Zohara Simmons. You had a, a number of black uh, men elected to office in state legislatures. You had Congress people uh, elected. And so this was the first thing that uh, the Klan, which began to be organized during this time, they said, we have to take the franchise away from these people. And so from that point, they had been adamant, black people are not going to vote down here because that means they will have power. And in this period, African-American voters did exercise their new electoral clout. They created school systems for black children and to pay for them raised taxes on everybody. In reaction, black elected officials and black voters were counterattacked. Uh, they literally, uh, in some cases, tarred and feathered uh, people who had been elected. Uh, we have some cases of abs uh, lynchings, uh, burning people's homes down, I mean, beatings. This is all documented. I mean, it was a reign of terror uh, to, to make sure that people who were voting, and of course they were only men um, at that point, uh, 
that they couldn't vote anymore. I mean, you were going to be killed if you attempted to do it or beaten. Um, women, children were lynched. I mean, it was horrible. There's a key turning point in the story. Historian Alex Kasar. Which is in 1890, as the stories are mounting um, about, about voter suppression uh, in the South, Congress considers a piece of legislation which basically authorized sending agents of the federal government into the South to protect the voting rights of, Af of African Americans. The Lodge Force Bill fails to pass by a very, very narrow vote. Um, and that marks the end of a Northern commitment to actively protecting the voting rights of, of African Americans. Meanwhile, a different population was fighting for its place at the American table. The waves of millions of newcomers arriving on boats, mostly from Europe and a smaller influx from China. And in this case, many Northerners felt their established social order was being disrupted. There is a concern as they watch increasing numbers of immigrants come into the country whom they regard as ill-educated and ill-equipped for democracy. The Irish first, and the northern states start passing laws to make it more difficult for immigrants to vote. New York State passes an English language literacy law in 1921. Uh, this is New York, the home of, of immigrants. Um, Ellis it, Island. You, right. Uh, welcome to the United States, but, uh, you know, and, and we, it's fine if you can speak Yiddish and Italian, but you can't vote. Uh, those laws remain on the books and enforced into the 1960s. You're listening to The Right to Vote, a Humankind special. I'm David Freudberg. To obtain an audio download or a CD of this documentary, to hear portions of interviews not included in the program, and to access related educational resources, please visit humanmedia.org. At the turn of the 20th century, in America, the world's largest democracy, a majority of adults were effectively prevented from voting, mostly blacks in the Deep South and women in much of the nation. Although the Constitution now explicitly enfranchised black men, women of any color were not federally entitled to vote, a right their suffrage movement had been seeking for decades. Historian Faye Dudden is author of Fighting Chance. The right to vote was the most radical of all of the rights that were talked about at the first Women's Rights Convention in Seneca Falls, New York in 1848. Uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton wanted to propose that one. All the others passed unanimously. Uh, Lucretia Mott told her, don't do that, that's too radical, you'll make us ridiculous. But Frederick Douglass was there, the great abolitionist leader. He encouraged Stanton to ask for the vote. He said, you will never get your freedom unless you have this kind of power. Stanton's bold resolution passed unanimously, and it would galvanize the fledgling campaign for women's rights. But in those years preceding outbreak of the Civil War, the nation's agenda would take up other matters. And the whole movement was suspended, and the war smashed Slavery, the one thing that they all were giving great priority to, was finally 
uh, taken down. And it seemed that this was a moment in Reconstruction where there was tremendous opportunity because the question of the right to vote was everywhere with the, the freed slaves in the South being their uh, enfranchisement being widely discussed. So they thought, here's our moment. Uh, we have a fighting chance. But friction started to develop between Elizabeth Cady Stanton's suffrage movement and efforts to enfranchise the former slaves. An abolitionist leader declared this is the Negro's hour, and that meant delaying the question of granting women the right to vote. But Stanton pushed back, resorting to racial epithets and insisting that enfranchisement of African-American men could result in what she called fearful outrages. Now, fearful outrages in 19th century euphemism, that meant rape. She was predicting that black male voters would be tantamount to rapists. They had the power of the vote and women did not. This was a really slimy thing to say. People call it the myth of the black rapist. It was to become the chief cover story for lynching in the postbellum South. So the fact that she was willing to buy into that and repeat that story was particularly distressing. The constitutional amendment that ultimately passed would extend the franchise to black men but exclude all women. As the 19th century drew to a close, though, female citizens were gradually gaining a foothold in the voting booth. According to Harvard historian Alex Kasar, enfranchisement of women began in several western states, then spread to some urban areas at a time of rapid cultural change. The increasing number and proportion of women who are educated, the increasing number of women who are living in cities, where organizing politically and organizing in an activist way is, is possible. That with changes in the nature of American industry, more and more women are going into the workplace. Neither Elizabeth Cady Stanton nor her political partner Susan B. Anthony would live to see their long dream of women's suffrage fully realized. But their cause was advanced by other forces at play. Faye Dutton. Frances Willard built the Women's Christian Temperance Union into an organization of hundreds of thousands of women. Ultimately, Frances Willard convinced her membership, sort of nice temperance ladies, to say, I think I need the vote because I want to use it to end demon rum. The Constitution's 18th Amendment, which ushered in prohibition of alcohol sales, took effect in January 1920. Seven months later saw ratification of the 19th Amendment, which guaranteed that a citizen's right to vote could not be denied or abridged based on gender. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. We who believe in freedom cannot rest. I was born in Memphis, Tennessee in 1944. Professor Zohara Simmons at the University of Florida in Gainesville. So it was very much during the Jim Crow era, and Memphis was a Jim Crow town. <laughs> Almost anything you can think of was separate and unequal. The schools, the churches, the buses. Uh, I grew up where we had to sit on the back of the bus, and even then, if the bus became crowded and there were whites who were standing, you had to give up your seat. 
even though you were in the colored section. Libraries were not open to black people. You couldn't try on clothes because, of course, if a black person had put on a shoe, no white person was going to put that same shoe on. There were no elected officials that were black. Uh, there were uh, no police persons. So, you know, it was, um, it was apartheid. I mean, at a certain level, looking back now, decades later, it, it almost seems absurd. What, what? <laughs> Absolutely, it does. And, you know, when I teach this stuff, the students, they, it's like they can't even comprehend what you're talking about. It, it's just so crazy to them, you know. In the early 1960s, O'Hara Simmons moved to Atlanta to attend Spelman College. Her church there was pastored by Reverend Ralph Abernathy, the longtime associate of Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. She would become active in voter registration efforts. My getting involved in the civil rights movement uh, was quite a journey because, first of all, uh, Spelman College threatened us, uh, you know, saying from the time we got there, you were not to get involved. And given that I was there on full scholarship and loans, uh, I was really terrified of losing my scholarship, and that's exactly what they told us they would do to us. And we should note that Spelman is a traditionally African-American college. yes. Uh, you know, they were, they saw themselves as at the mercy of the white establishment. And so they saw themselves as possibly being harmed uh, if their students were participating. Nevertheless, you made a decision that you were going to venture into the civil rights movement. What so drew you, especially considering the high stakes for you? There were a lot of uh, factors, uh, faculty influence, church influence, and then I think most importantly, the young people who were my age, who were putting everything on the line and making no bones about how they looked at those of us who were not willing to do the same. So I start getting involved little by little. I was terrified of being arrested. At a young age, Zohara Simmons had to wrestle with a tough personal decision. But she couldn't escape the feeling that somehow, in spite of the risks, she was being called to participate. And it led her to volunteer for a daring project to register black citizens to vote in Mississippi. My folks were totally opposed to my involvement. Why? Oh, they were terrified. I mean, for them, uh, you know, marching and going to jail, I mean, they just thought, you're asking for death. I mean, so this was uh, something that they were terribly afraid for me, and, and they put a lot of pressure on me not to, to go. And, of course, while I was in Memphis growing up, I had heard of the horrors of Mississippi. So it was like everybody thought that Mississippi was the worst hellhole for black people in this country. So what horrors about Mississippi had you heard? Oh, I'd heard about lynchings. Um, I'd heard that people were literally uh, imprisoned on plantations uh, where they were not able to leave. They were under armed guards. Uh, that people would escape 
from Mississippi, and their first stop would be Memphis because, as you know, Memphis is right on the border with uh, the Mississippi Delta. So I had heard all these stories growing up because my grandmother was very aware of this stuff. And so uh, when they learned that I was even thinking of going to Mississippi in 1964 for the Mississippi Summer Project, they said I'd lost my mind, you know, that anybody going there had a death wish. The Mississippi Summer Project, which came to be known as Freedom Summer, was organized by four major civil rights organizations. Treading into perilous waters, the organizers recruited a thousand college students nationwide, some black but the vast majority white, many from top schools. The hope was that with integrated participation, parents of the white students might get the ear of authorities and help protect all the young activists. Zohara Simmons was assigned to establish a freedom school in the town of Laurel, Mississippi, southeast of Jackson. I had this name of a woman named Mrs. Eberta Spinks. And I went to the door, I knocked on it, and I was still, you know, I'd never done anything like this before, and I think I was stumbling with who to tell her I was. And she sort of looked me up and down and she said, Girl, are you one of those freedom riders? And I didn't know if that was good or bad. And I said, yes, ma'am. And she said, come in here, girl. I've been waiting on you all my life. And she was in her late 50s. And that was the beginning of the Laurel Project. Meridian, Mississippi, August 7, 1964, the funeral of James Cheney, one of three Freedom Summer volunteers, all murdered in acts of terrorism, all in their early 20s. Fanatical white segregationists in the South deeply resented what they saw as an invasion of interlopers from the North, who disrespected long-standing local customs. Our first building was firebombed, and the fire department would not put it out, so we lost uh, books and all kinds of equipment. And uh, it was very hard then to get another place because people were afraid to rent to us. Were the people who perpetrated the bombing ever prosecuted? No. I, I mean, nobody even <laughs> cared to look into it. It was totally, nobody cared. That's how it was. With the eyes of the nation now watching, Freedom Summer continued in Mississippi, with its young participants sobered, frightened, but undeterred. We were knocking on people's doors. We were speaking in churches. We were having mass meetings, explaining to people what we were doing. And the people were all for it. Because of the deeply entrenched pattern of voter intimidation, less than 7% of Mississippi's African-American citizens were registered to vote, the lowest percentage of any state. The goal of Freedom Summer was to show America that more blacks would register if they could do so in safety. On the days that had been decided all across the state, we had um, mock voter registration centers set up. Uh, these were in churches, 
places that black people had control over. And so this, uh, the word was out across the state. And so thousands of black people participated in this process. And within a year, the nation responded. President Lyndon B. Johnson addressing Congress March 1965. Every American citizen must have an equal right to vote. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart Rose, associate producer Mark Kilstein. Editorial assistance from Lisa Mullins, Thomas Royal, and Kathy Graham. Webmaster, Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Rounder Records and Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with Connie Goldman Productions. Program development provided by Shart Media. To purchase a CD copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. And our web address is humanmedia.org. This segment, part one of The Right to Vote, is Humankind Program number 208. The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind. Coming up in a minute on the second half of Humankind, our exploration of the right to vote continues. We consider the Supreme Court's controversial recent ruling on the Voting Rights Act, the debate over voter ID requirements, and should people who've been convicted of serious crimes be allowed to vote after serving their time? When the right to vote continues on Humankind in a moment. To hear more episodes of Humankind, you can subscribe to our free podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast player. A new episode each week. The podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you enjoy this program, be sure to leave us a kind review at iTunes and Stitcher. Again, our web address is humanmedia.org. Thanks.